0: This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred by
1: and night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about
0: you being head of the Temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will. But... I want
1: you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive. Able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind.
0: And uh, who was
2: the grotto leader? Don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? I think very happy to Yes. Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 163. I am your co-host, Dimitri.
3: I'm Khalid.
2: And today, we have a very special follow-up episode, um, I think, that's been in the works for a very long time, um, and this is a follow-up to one of our earliest uh, SJ Deep Dives, I think. I don't know which number it was, maybe number
3: 12? It was um, really early, I don't know. Yeah.
2: Really early, but like I, th- I consider it a foundational episode, and that is, of course... The, the den of daemons about uh, child actor turned um, TV internet entrepreneur turned pedophile uh, fugitive turned Bitcoin billionaire, Brock Pierce and his uh, long strange trip. And of course, like any, com- any conversation about Brock Pierce has to talk about the wild and crazy world of cryptocurrency. And I think Certain things have changed in the crypto world since we recorded that in the fall of 2020. Things were very much still in the upswing, but now it's three years later. The crypto bubble has been, you know, punctured a little bit. But wouldn't you know it, uh, Brock Pierce? He still, uh, he is uh, still trucking out there. So we want to check back in with that whole saga today. But we are not alone. We have with us somebody that I've been excited to have on the show for months, been talking to him. And this is a guy who has made it, I I think it's safe to say like his beat, to talk about the sus and uh, also neocolonial side of crypto. And that uh, is of course academic Olivier Jotel. Olivier, are you there?
4: Koda Koto, thanks. So great to be here with y'all. And it's great to have this space because I, you know, I gotta button down my like, you know, I publish papers and and you you say things that like, you know, crypto is is run by powerful interests and the center of global capitalism. And oh, wouldn't you know it, you know, third generation venture capitalists like Tim Draper. But you can't quite go full like What the fuck is going on here? My brain is sort of leaking out of my, you know, this is the this is the place to talk about this this weird margin or sort of liminal space of the perversity of crypto finance and uh, guys that want to live out and do mystical sort of uh, I mean, this goes back to the whole earth catalog stuff too like they were so obsessed with like being quote indians and cowboy uh cowboy indians right? Yeah. cowboy nomads there you go exactly mm-hmm. so yeah. nothing is more perfect than brock and i couldn't be talking about this with so glad to be with my two favorite church moms
3: and (laughs) Yeah. Well, i mean i'm very happy to have a fellow uh phd you know uh, my peer reviewed comrade on the on the program i think that if dimitri you know just listens very carefully he might learn a few things you know from (laughs) from from us but yes very um, true
2: we're coming back uh, like you know doubly as serious as we were last time we talked about this true and uh and i think it's so cool because like Since we did that first episode, like episode 12, we have gone on such a wild ride through the history of Silicon Valley and all kinds of things that are adjacent to it. And of course, like sort of the underbelly of, you know, finance, intelligence operations, everything else. And I know from listening to some of your uh, interviews, Olivier, that like basically you are very much on that tip, and you've integrated, I think, just like you said, the whole Earth catalog and stuff, um, into your kind of critique of the crypto industry, or what you call blockchain imperialism. And so I think we're really going to, like, gather together many different strands from, like, changing images of man to the the 60s, like, kind of MK, LSD counterculture, to the recent explosion of, like, Psychedelics, which is definitely going to come up today, and like the the push behind that, and to what extent like that overlaps with the crypto industry, and the prevalence of like sketchy pedophiles running around, and yeah, like you said, third generation My students,
4: when I when I bring out the Whole Earth catalogs, these big old you know brown chunky things, they're like, what? What do you what? What's the point here? There's sort of like, and I'll like flick through it. It's it's just fascinating. Look now they don't, they don't see it, but I'm, I'm happy to be here with, yeah, that's the, it, you know, how to put this, uh, the frontier and the sort of colonial, uh, I mean, I think actually, this is a pretty normy publication, uh, Barbara and Cameron's Californian Ideology. There's a yes, desire yeah. to, you know, see the frontier as the place where man makes himself and his fortune, but then thinks of himself as this sort of like transcendent artist and master. But really it's all, it always comes back to sort of like the Monticello and a kind of plantation economy. There's always a kind of like lurking behind whatever sort of celebration of, you know, Stuart Brand said, you know, there's so many different knowers of the way, or my God, we have these weirdos in New Zealand and they're they're, they're sponsoring a documentary called uh, Founders Outside the Valley. And it's sort of like, we are all indigenous people looking for our tribes and we're all looking (laughs) for Kopapa, which is like this Māori concept, which is so rooted in, like, our place, Aotearoa, New Zealand, and is so rooted to a collective, uh, indigenous ownership of language that you know, the perversity of applying this to sort of like a digital networked, uh, sort of just mystical Burning Man, um, cultural mystique is just, uh, it's just, it's obscene. It's so obscene. I was
2: just gonna say, it's so fucking Burning Man that it's like almost unbearable. Yeah. But- you know, you see that that is like the the sword that the Silicon Valley people wield uh, oftentimes to kind of like cut down resistance to whatever they want to, quote unquote, disrupt. It's just like with ayahuasca and how, you know, all these psychedelic companies are just blah, 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 talking all day about indigenous reciprocity and respecting the ancestors and blah, blah, saying all the right things. But it's also like appropriating them in this very grotesque instrumental like cynical way to try to like trick people. So now I guess yeah, like in some of your writings you talked about like what are they called like pre-founders and and stuff like that, like we're all founders and This is
0: like well, the, we, mm-hmm.
2: tech people and founders fund. This is I'm sorry, this is about the founding
4: fathers, right? Like this is kind of like language of American liberty and mm-hmm. iconography. So the no the notion that there are sort of like indigenous founders. And I mean, this is something coming back to, you know, some of my most recent work um, like this is so cut through in the kind of crypto lexicon um, that you even have like uh, this prominent African crypto uh, journalist who's like read the Federalist Papers. You know, <laughs> it's it's so great. Yeah.
2: <laughs> no, they, there is a lurking desire, just like John Perry Barlow said. He wanted, he envisioned a Jeffersonian frontier with like a Jeffersonian cyber frontier is what he envisioned the internet to be. You know, and like it's right there. Jeffersonian. Why do we and, use that term? And back to the sort of new religionist side,
4: and I'm nowhere near as verse well versed in this as you guys are, but like, you know, is there's no there's no sort of coincidence that the sort of frontier is a space of sort of like techno religions, whether we're talking about, you know, Mormonism and and all the stuff that uh, Eric Davis writes about in sort of technosis that, that, you know, these are uh, secular religious concepts that Silicon Valley wields. And like, I was, I sent you that weird photo of Brock Pierce in the, in the pool. And I swear that like, wherever <laughs> I'm looking at, Whether it's Richard Branson, when they're, like, founding the Global Blockchain Council and they market by, like, all jumping in the pool together on Necker Island, or Tim Draper's Clown College University, Draper University, like, one of the first things in his, like, 10-step program is, like, jump in the pool. So, they're they're constantly Uh... baptizing themselves. It's just... (laughs) It's it's sickening. That
2: especially hits different for Brock Pierce. He has a little bit of a history of uh, "quote unquote" baptizing uh, people in uh, well, really more specifically hot tubs. But oh boy, uh, or doing things to people in hot tubs and in like Suge Knight's former mansion in the '90s and like so many things with Brock Pierce. It's like he he's constantly kind of like rubbing it in your faces that you know, and yet gets away with it all the time. Like he's he he's actually more untouchable now uh because you know i went back and kind of did a little bit of a brock pierce roundup and he is doing quite well in 2023 he is making a lot of new friends you know he has set up his base of operations down in puerto rico right mm-hmm. uh, i think we had talked in our original episode about you know he
3: puertopia wanted, wasn't that where was yeah, yeah the uh,
2: latin portmanteau for like boy utopia basically um yeah, which doesn't have the same name anymore. But there is, I think there's an island in Puerto Rico I was just reading about that I think used to house like a former U.S. Navy base that is now kind of a little resort island with a lot of hotels. And Brock Pierce like just bought, uh, it might have been the former W Hotel on that island. Um, so, you know, which it, it's very on brand for Brock Pierce too to be like, have like a luxury hotel, like weird crypto cult, like compound on a former Navy base in the Caribbean. <laughs> It's well, very on brand for him. Don't, don't want to
4: jump ahead too much, but uh, the way when you say like he's untouchable, rubbing it in in uh, everyone's face. I mean, the fact that that New York Post article, which talks about the death of uh, one of the founders of MakerDAO oh, in Puerto yeah. Rico. So some some of our listeners will know about this. This was sort of set off a little bit of a, I don't you know, it was sort of like a a conspiracy theorist mm-hmm. high watermark event where this guy. Um, the last, his last tweet was about you know I sorry I don't have the text in front of me but Can I actually
2: can I can I read his last tweet verbatim because yes. honestly given the context <laughs> okay. what we're talking about it's yeah. it, this is from Nikolai Moshigian who is a like Russian born yeah like you said crypto crypto guy big heavily involved with MakerDAO who wound up dead in Puerto Rico in November 2022 but his last tweet before he died was this quote. CIA and Mossad and and pedo elite are running some kind of sex trafficking entrapment blackmail ring out of Puerto Rico and Caribbean islands. They are going to frame me with a laptop planted by my ex who was a spy. They will torture me to death. And then the article says, sources told the Post, Meshegian had left his home in the Lux Condado area for a walk. A little after 9 a.m., a surfer off Ashford Beach, a spot considered so rife with riptides that local hotels, warn against ocean swimming, discovered his body in the waves. He was wearing his clothes and had his wallet on him. And then at the end of the article, who would they interview but uh, Meshagian's uh, friend in the crypto space, uh, Brock Pierce, who said, and this was, like, truly chilling, I think, um... He told the Post that Meshagian's death was a tragedy that may never be solved. Quote, His mother clarified that his death had nothing to do with his conspiracy tweets. He was a beautiful man and a child at heart. He was also an incredible visionary. I don't call people brilliant very often, but Nikolai was brilliant, and brilliant people sometimes walk the edge of insanity. Nikolai okay. was working toward an incorruptible world, and he wanted there to be a separation of banking and the state, just as there is a separation of church and state, Pierce added. He felt the world would be much better off if central banks couldn't print money and finance wars. And the final quote, um, intelligence agencies are not hunting down crypto pioneers. If the government were knocking off people in this field, I would know. (laughs) Uh yes you would Brock. Yes child, you would no, for fucking me, no. The one that gets me is child at heart. He was a child at heart. Yeah. I like
3: uh his mother reported like okay or you know verified yeah, his like, mom like okay. Told now you're me. like amateur journalist like Brock Pierce like she she verified, <laughs> she confirmed like okay, thank you. Thank you for relaying that information. Very strange. Well yeah, maybe yeah. we can
2: talk about Brock Pierce's journalistic endeavors a little later. Um no. but yeah, and this reminded me I for, I actually honestly forget if we had really brought it up or gotten into depth with it in our uh, Den of Damon's episode, but I don't know if you remember Olivier. Back in 2014, there was a crypto entrepreneur named Adam Radke, no. who uh, died in Singapore. Let me see if I I have the um, the link right here to the article. Um, let me see if I can put it in the in the Zoom chat um, for you. And Adam Radke, this is one of the things I looked in. This is one of the things I looked into during the whole buffalo ja rabbit hole right when i i sort of almost went uh insane in 2014 Trying to sort of like well, figure out. Brilliant do, uh, well, yeah, exactly. yeah. Sometimes
3: brilliant people do walk. Well, yeah, exactly. Sometimes brilliant people go over the edge uh, because
2: they know this guy is mm-hmm. like a sus fuck, and you know they want to warn people about him, but nobody wants to listen because he's so <laughs> cool and he's going to change the world, right? So Adam Radke was this American woman who was living in Singapore, and in March 2014, which was like a couple months before I got on this whole like Buffalo J J-A kick, but it was kind of in the it was in the Bitcoin news world back then she died in singapore under like kind of vague circumstances like she uh, as this article says this is the, actually the article that set off alarm bells there is no doubt that the mysterious world of bitcoin is twisted around the story of autumn radke's death but its exact role is very hard to entangle officials called the death quote unnatural as Radke was found dead on the roof of a ground floor trash collection plant at the base of her apartment building. Everyone agrees that Miss Radke's death was a suicide, but they disagree about whether or not the suicide was connected to the current tribulations of Bitcoin, which was basically, this is right after Mount Gox Gox collapsed. Yeah, exactly. The thing though, down here, it says that another associate of hers, Steve Beauregard, had lunch with Radke the day before her death. Beauregard founded the Singapore Bitcoin payment platform GoCoin, used by First Meta, that's her company. Beauregard said, quote, she was clearly stressed. She talked about dot 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 challenges with her business. Um, So I just want to point out there that uh, Steve Beauregard, who founded founded GoCoin, he co-founded that with brock pierce and brock pierce was very good friends with autumn Radke, and in fact i remember there being pictures brock pierce might have even posted these himself of autumn Radke and brock pierce like hanging out at burning man together and i think they might have even been in like the same tribe but you know and there's like the unicorn tri- i think they might have even been in something called the unicorn tribe together because <sighs> there's the love tribe there's all these different tribes and stuff but like I think I also found out that Steve Bogard, um, I forget either he was living at her apartment for a while or she was living at his apartment for a while, like in the period directly preceding uh, her death and they had lunch the day before she died. And, Also, this is deep Bitcoin forum lore, but I remember Mm -hmm. back in the day when this like Phineas Gage user was on the warpath against Brock Pierce. There was always like this guy, whenever anybody would attack GoCoin, this like account would pop up, this like low follower account would pop up, be like, shut the fuck up, shut the fuck up. Like, Steve Beauregard is awesome. And like, Brock Pierce is based, (laughs) like, you have no evidence, blah, 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 blah. blah. And then it turned out that this guy was, I think, I want to say it was John Beauregard, basically, Steve Beauregard's brother was going on the forums like under a kind of like sock puppet account and like attacking anybody that said that they were like a scam or anything like that. So that was like a little bit weird. It kind of set somebody some people's radar off a little bit. The other really creepy thing is when I was following like the Buffalo JA accounts on Facebook like Mark Collins, rector, there was some traveling that that account was doing around Europe. They went to. They actually were in Barcelona one day when Brock Pierce publicly was also in Barcelona. Coincidence? I don't know. But another time, uh, he was in London, and like even I think Geo tagged himself on Facebook at the Ritz Carlton. And uh, who else was in that exact neighborhood of London that day but Steve Beauregard, who posted on Facebook that he was, like, right there in London, too. And, you know, there's always been these rumblings. Uh, They're definitely more back in, like, 2014. Um, And going back to Brock Pierce's IGE days, that, you know, he didn't exactly cut ties with Mark Collins' rector, you know, the den mastermind and convicted pedophile, you know, after their business collapsed. Like, they actually, according to a lot of people, they kept up their business relationship and pierce was sort of acting as a front for mark collins rector in like the video game kind of digital currency kind of space first with world of warcraft but then Mm. maybe uh later on with crypto itself you know it kind of would track and especially you know we get really into the dark shit here but like you know who was actually using Bitcoin back in like 2010, 2011? like who were really the early adopters? Sure, you had some like techies and some cyber libertarians, right? You also had people that were buying and selling drugs, right yeah and you I, also I, had uh, pedophiles, right
4: <laughs> this is the this is the thing too you know I think of uh, Ross Ulbricht and guys like Cody Wilson yeah that there's a performative level of being you know deeply you know libertarian bunker mentality anti-state and and let's just say all of the sort of uh anti-semitic anti-central bank gold bug you know paranoid stuff that goes with that and that which then makes them the perfect kind of people to either manipulate or run ops through or if they're going to sort of like freak out and break down and have some sort of you know break um it's likely to take some sort of like QAnon style delusional form um but all those things are true at the same time so i mean you know back to um our, our guy from MakerDAO. Mm-hmm. i mean he could have had a break and not really known or, or grasped everything that sort of so he could have been correct in his sort of mental breakdown or he could really just this is truly the sort of the structure of the whole edifice. I personally, in my my academic work, like I don't have any sort of thing that says this is the new BCCI, um, but it would make sense <laughs> that this would be the new BCCI. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Or the new capital so bank left, unfortunately, or the new, like, yeah, we're left with the critical paranoid lens. That's kind of the best
3: we have at this stage. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned this sort of thing of the kind of anti-state posturing, which I think is like a big part of this, like uh, in that sort of quote from Brock Pierce, like where he went on kind of like a soapbox monologue while talking about the death of his alleged friend. He, you know, made that whole big point about uh, being, you know, liberated from fiat currencies and central banks and things like that. But it's very interesting because, yeah, like, we do see kind of this, uh, and I mean, I guess this does have a longer precedent, but this kind of uh, libertarian anti-state impulse that, you know, we talk about, like, sort of critiques of the CIA that are coming from, like, the American right, and you've done... A lot of great writing on like the transformations in the american right wing and sort of online discourses things like that sort of uh, often through like a psychoanalytic lens which i think is like very interesting or like a lacanian psychoanalytic lens but it, it is interesting to me how you know brock pierce who himself like ran for president in 2020 is now like seems like kind of like an rfk guy you know, who Big also time, yeah. attracts people from this kind of you know like parapolitical line of critique. But it's interesting where like yeah, okay, you can see this as being sort of anti-state or you know taking a stand against you know, the the quote unquote deep state or, or uh, whatever or intelligence community. But you like when you bring in this whole like agenda to have like Bitcoin sort of replace these things or to fight these things in order to establish this, as he's talked about this, like a frontier space of, of freedom for Bitcoin. It takes on like a different tone or it, it puts it in a different context. Um, well,
4: I, I would link. So I think, um, I mean, yeah, he's definitely part of the RFK. Let's mobilize and shit coat all the kind of critiques that, you know, the kinds of stuff you guys do and I do. And to make that a gross yicky space for anyone on the left, right? Like, what are you QAnon? Mm-hmm. But of course, his he's he's worked with the same uh, political consultants, RTA strategy. And I have to give uh, credit to the Crypto Critics Pod for digging this up. And you know, similar. And th- this is a this is a Republican consultancy firm that RFK, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Herschel Walker, and George Santos. So he's part of this sort of like. Republic. I actually, I like to think of the whole, uh, the way in which QAnon or anti-deep state sort of discourse and sort of JFK discourse. I feel like it's it's the same way that the Tea Party rebrand was necessary in like 2008, 2009. Like, let's do something cool with the Republican brand, i.e. make it libertarian. And I mean, it's not cool, obviously, but that was a sort of like, (laughs) let's be edgy or... You know, and and I feel like that's basically what the sort of Tucker and Rumble, all that space is essentially doing is like, okay, here's here's some heat in sort of like online space. We see how online is an incredibly sort of way of sort of constituting publics to support particular candidacies and media entities, all that kind of stuff. But then when you really strip it down... You've got a politics of posting is first principle of like free speech. Mm -hmm. So we're back to like sort of Mm -hmm. John Perry Barlow, First Amendment, sort of American triumphalism of the internet. Mm -hmm. And then like these, one of the things that's so harmful about crypto, I feel in the developing world and where it is really effective is creating this just sort of like American discourse of like liberty against tyranny. Like that's really the kind of, that becomes very open society and versus
2: closed society right that, that
4: yeah but it, i feel well it's in the techno optimistic side is sort of like a large enough funnel for v- various articulations in the past the techno optimistic side was much more sort of like liberal technocratic and now it's it's more everybody's sort of going galt and we're getting concepts of like hey what if we could just create an african nation that goes completely metaverse and gold. so it i i think (laughs) is as a sort of like political messaging operation there's the fake well i mean fake i mean a lot of these people are deeply you know anti they're they're you know they're true libertarians but they will glom onto the whatever rfk is doing and that anti-deep state discourse but just to reify that there is some kind of american principle of liberty freedom technology that is at the core of what they're doing
3: yeah, reading your your papers and your your writings that you know I was even reading your your book chapter. I think in it was in a rutledge uh companion to psychoanalytics or maybe uh psychoanalysis or maybe psycho It's a real mouthful. Politics. Yeah, psychoanalytic yeah.
4: political theory.
3: Yeah, psychoanalytic. that one's about the libs. Theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. That was post politics was the the chapter, right? Um that was interesting and it yeah, like I hearing what you're saying now, I it's it's interesting to think, you know, because that article I felt was sort of suggesting that there had really been this kind of collapse in the epistemic authority of this liberal consensus, right? And the sort of power of this, what you said just now is a technocratic vision of you know, the sort of uh, liberal stability, like of the experts and like, you know, uh, you use the example of Robbie Mook's like gamified electioneering you know, where he's like got all these precise ad buys like targeted to these demographics like with algorithmic precision and everything like that. And you You know, it's very it's it's hard to really appreciate these things in the sort of short term, like as we're kind of living them. But I do wonder if, you know, maybe I don't know if you would agree with this. I'd be interested to hear what you'd say. But are we like seeing a shift like in terms of our hegemonic discourse, like in the public sphere and in terms of like our media, our our most authoritative media institutions? Are we seeing like a shift towards that more sort of libertarian style like techno optimism, you know this sort of uh, yeah, like cowboy, you know maybe uh, to be evocative of Carl Oglesby like uh, you know vision of but I, I'd be interested to hear what you think about that is that well, you know uh, I, s- I suppose yeah.
4: the, the cultural war the cultural war boundaries lines have been you know are deeply entrenched now. and one of the things that the right has that's I su- just just at a sort of level of rhetoric and, as, and of discourse, uh, which is effective is they have a sort of anti-big tech discourse that they wield, and mm-hmm. and some of that is because they think of whatever Bill Gates sort of you know vaccine discourse, and and some of that is based on speech and and you know basically standing for Elon Musk and and that kind of nonsense. But nevertheless, they do have a sort of like antagonistic view towards big tech as sort of like fundamentally threatening you know some notion of the american way of life and Mm -hmm. the liberal response to that is to try to reimpose technocratic management like over big tech or some kind of like state big tech oversight mechanisms which is the worst of all possible worlds because we don't actually attack you know the monopoly power and use antitrust and sort of think about, well, what would it mean to have an internet that, and I know Americans never think like this. A lot of this comes out of sort of like, I mean, I, I have to invoke sort of like European notions of public broadcasting and sort of licensing to think about this, but what would a public interest internet look like? And what would, would sort of like public broadcasting as a platform strategy look like? No, one, no one's really having that conversation. It's basically, do you want the Department of Homeland Security uh, sort of disinfo experts Or do you want freedom and freedom in that sort of libertarian sense? And I'm like, how about neither? Um, But we're even seeing this in New Zealand where we're the cultural imperialism of the Internet and sort of like platform imperialism is so pervasive that like New Zealand politics and media opinion makers are trying to. Force us through the concept that our democracy and our media is under attack by Russia when really Mm -hmm. like we're under attack by America or like American (laughs) networks completely proliferate and change the nature of our political discourse. So it's 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 really clumsy
3: and I mean yeah, you can observe anyway. that everywhere where there's like pa- panic over like immigration in like landlocked countries that have like minimal immigration because of like the warping effect of American political discourse but sorry yeah continue um
4: yeah. Oh, no, totally. I mean, and so, and we're even seeing this, like, the, the techno-optimistic side of liberalism become, sorry to sound like a Tucker guy now, but like, you know, to, to or Glenn Greenwald or something, but they do want to take on this sort of responsibility to, like, censor and, I mean, from, like, a methodological academic perspective, like, what's proposed in this, this field of disinformation is just such fucking nonsense. Like, it's just it's just sort of cold war paranoiac fever dream so it just becomes just a a cultural identity that they're trying to reify through the mm-hmm. platforms um and don't get me started on the stanford internet observatory and all that but to link mm-hmm. it all back it's it's really interesting how much and i don't know what to make of this but you know uh Brittany kaiser you know her she was uh i suppose a running mate or a, or a part of Brock's team of super friends oh. when he announced for the 2020 candidacy, which oh, included, like, Tim Draper and Akon and a bunch of other, you know, <laughs> pack of weirdos. But Brittany Kaiser w- was one of these fake Cambridge Analytica whistleblowers. I don't have time, but basically, there's so much sort of the last six years of the tech clash has been marked by, like, I don't know, like, fake whistleblowers, like like Francis <laughs> Haugen and Brittany Kaiser. They're both crypto yeah. Port- uh, Puerto Rican, crypto, sorry, Cryptopians from Puerto Rico.
3: Yeah. Francis, oh, I didn't uh, realize Quir- that. that I, 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 or maybe it's yeah. now Cryptopia. I don't know. Yeah. Cryptopia. I think it's
2: Saulians. Sol- is- remember, uh, Saul was oh, what he wanted right. to call it. So- Yeah. All right. Uh, whatever um, it is, but no, I actually now I remember that. Did they have like? Uh, I feel like they had like pink or blue hair or something, and they were like kind of Christopher Wiley. Was so. Oh, okay. There's an
4: awesome uh, Anthony Monsuit, who's a French journalist, has interviewed Christopher Wiley and Bannon and all the folks in and around the various startups. And basically, that um, Guardian journalist, I'm going real deep cuts on my stupid uh, intellectual interest, but there we go. But that Guardian journalist, Carolyn Codswallop or Caldwalder, or whatever her name is. C- Cadwalder. Um,
3: is that who you
4: mean? There you go. Something uh, yeah. like that. It's, All
3: right. Continue. I actually know who you talking about. It must be a Welsh
4: name. Yeah. Uh uh-huh. But she, she's the star of the sort of journalism in and around Cambridge Analytica. The Essentially, the walls were closing in on Christopher Wiley, and he decided to concoct a story that he was the principled person standing up for uh, the, the rights of democratic, et cetera, et cetera. And again, ever a salesman, like when he was selling sort of psychometrics in this sort of way that, you know, Cambridge Analytica is going to peel back your scalp and then just insert the bad thoughts into your brain. Um, You know, when he, he when he was selling that product, that was the story. And then when he was the whistleblower, that was the story. And we know that this is not like demonstrably false. And we've had voluminous research that proves that this is not how this targeted advertising works at all but it was really convenient for everybody because we had a sort of like mk ultra manchurian candidate distributed through the internet notion of politics set in you know because now now basically the default liberal mode of being online is like everybody is a bot except me you know like and everybody (laughs) shoshana zuboff writes about this she basically says you are now remotely controlled and it she says, "This war on our minds doesn't come at the end of a rifle, but comes bearing a cappuccino." I mean, it's just they're having, a, mm-hmm. they're not having a great time here.
1: Ugh, um, yeah, yeah. But anyway, it's an uh, it's an what, ugly what weird in your, space.
2: What, in your opinion, was Cambridge Analytica? How were they actually functioning versus how they presented themselves? In your opinion?
4: Well, I mean, look, you know, uh, Blue Labs had the same Facebook data scrape that Cambridge Analytica did, and th- there's this interesting. Uh, aspect of this which is that like for facebook cambridge analytica is bad press but also good press because it is also sort of it reifies the notion that this algorithmic behavioral marketing machine is so powerful that it will turn your democracy inside out yeah so everyone is committed to the bit Mm -hmm. that this is this (laughs) all-powerful thing and of course you know advertising is a bit of a big mystery and it is a you know there is a lot of methods of measurement that we have at our disposal to make decisions about how we market how we place and that is a sort of like powerful engine but in terms of like straight line causality this is and 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 what you'll find in the sort of liberal response to this post-cambridge world is basically reheated notions of like the push button thesis or the hypodermic needle theory of communication like they basically like Messenger A, recipient B, straight line. And yeah. absorb the message. And then action It's C. very uh, we're a
2: sloppy disk, basically. That yes. like, I have downloaded the fake news. I yeah. will vote for Trump now. It's like, it doesn't exactly work that way. Well, and, yeah, and th- it's like, it's very overdetermined the way they kind of contextualize it.
4: And, and it works for Sam Altman when he says, I'm a stochastic parrot and so are you. Like, I love the computer. I am computer. Like, this is the kind of, we're all invested. Well, we, I mean, and, and you know, academics are just, are so guilty here because the the shorthand for this post 2016 was just to say, as Cambridge Analytical sh- shows, you know it's just like boom, mm-hmm. point made we're all mm-hmm. we're all just like getting uploaded our Putin programming now so I think <laughs> but this again is a something that helps sustain tech hype, tech solutionism, even in the sort of dread of tech in the tech clash, we still uh will concede, oh yeah, this is the most powerful political and social force. And so therefore, definitional power over sort of like the big social questions need, need to be in the hands of the whatever, the Ubermensch. So mm. um there we go. And and to back to crypto, I suppose the the one thing they have going for them is if you can overlook all the sort of political monstrosity. It is a determined ideology of like, this is your exit from all that bullshit. This is your liberty, Liberty. this is your sovereignty. I mean, yeah. it's the kind of, it's the liberty of fools, but it's mm-hmm. it's a simple message, you know, in this sort of complex web of shit.
3: Yes, it's yeah, interesting yeah. because it definitely, you know, it's hard to say, I feel like, that Bitcoin doesn't have... Isn't also, like, a big tech thing. And I think that even the way that Brock Pierce, like, portrays himself... I mean, maybe, obviously, like, there's some heterogeneity, like, within the phenomenon of, like, big tech or, like, the tech sector, you know? It's, like, so enormous now that, like, you know, to say that it's it's homogenous, like, would be wrong. But, you know, I definitely feel like Brock Pierce kind of portray, portrays himself in... As, like, this kind of big tech burner guy. You know, like, a lot of those, like, Burning, pe- burning Man people are, like, Silicon Valley people. I mean, even elon i feel like has kind of like gradually stepped into a role that is like a slightly more mainstream brock pierce where he's like kind of very consistently critical of some like amorphous like liberalism right and always kind of signaling in the sort of direction like you know his sort of fr- as you said like posting as free speech is probably like the only value that Elon professes, even though, like, does he uphold it? Like, no, probably worse than the original Twitter, (laughs) uh, although it would be a toss-up. Like, But, yeah, it does seem that this alternative vision is also technocratic in a big way, you know, not in the same way. Like, you know, you could say, like, there's two theocracies that could be very different. There's two democracies that maybe are extremely different. uh, Or maybe, you know, they're not democracies, but they're extremely different. Like, you know, uh, things that call themselves democracies. But I feel like these are two different visions of technocracy you know there is as you have mentioned your papers are kind of an archaicizing and even like indigenizing discourse to the uh sort of crypto optimism but i think that there can be some of that stuff also in the uh familiar maybe uh liberal technocratic optimism so i don't know I wonder what do you well what it's, do you make it's interesting that?
4: yeah it's interesting too like uh, brock reconstitutes his like den like history as like I was into digital video and then I yeah. went to World of Warcraft and I was into the metaverse before it was the metaverse
2: so it's sort yeah. of like you know I saw the way I will give him that he does have a knack for being like at the exact right place at the exact right time for like cutting edge tech that's like not quite there yet but in, in an embryonic well, stage like I he mean yeah stumbling it, into it
4: absolutely and I think he forged in the Everquest World of Warcraft economy the relationship between sort of offshore jurisdictions and you know how you you know extract cash money from these economies and the kinds of intricate legal you know dodges and carve outs that that you need to make this thing real and is crypto real i mean it's 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 funny because it's sort of like on the one hand the fetishism at the heart of crypto is that it's the most real thing ever. It's burning energy. Crypto is energy. And and it's sort of like a perfect sort of gold bug thing because the way, you know, gold bug people are like, gold is value is value is value. Well, why is gold valuable? Well, because it's value. That's how they think about proof of work, right? All that energy and waste is like, well, there's nothing more real and hardcore than that. And we're building, we're building web three from it we're building hydro power plants in the developing world not really but we're gonna say it but so um Mm -hmm. you know this is the sort of the boundary between like fetishism uh the sort of frontiers and seeing that sort of like speculative horizon and then finding ways to get people to put U.S. dollars into it, because that's really people just want to get U.S. dollars out of it at the end yeah. of the day. And and then, you know, telling that story that you're part of the new Web3 journey or a community of decentralized finance or or whatever it is. So, you know, this is a, you know, crypto, I, I, this is a trap for me in my work, which is to kind of attack crypto from like a normie New Deal finance perspective. Um mm-hmm. Which, whatever the problems are there, at least these are um, notions of thinking about money and uh, finances finance as like public goods and intimately connected to our political and cultural systems. Whereas these guys are they're off in outer space or they're they're in web three. They're envisaging yeah, their crypto utopia, which is this mesh of sort of religion and frontier and I don't know, like I said on the pre-record, like all manner of perversity and demonic stuff you know it's all sort of and and finance has that for sure um but i still want to hold the line of of where this is this complete flight from uh political reality
2: but more I and more our a, finance is yeah. looking like
4: crypto so goddamn what are we gonna do <laughs>
2: <laughs> i think that's a really good point and i'm glad that you you do kind of harp on that i i think it's warranted um like in your work to talk about you know, despite all the rhetoric and the promises and stuff, isn't it interesting how these things are often used as Trojan horses to knock down what little is left at this point of New Deal financial, like regulatory frameworks that were put in place, you know, under Roosevelt and the Great Depression, which, you know, you could look at from a multiplicity of perspectives of like, as FDR, I think one said, like he was sort of saving capitalism from itself and making sure that it didn't, like, devour itself, basically. But it did put certain restraints, you know, things like Glass-Steagall that were in place for decades, that, right. uh, that that tied down, that put certain limits on the financial frontier, so to speak. And I think, personally, that, like, the fall of uh, Soviet communism in the Eastern Bloc and basically the collapse of, like, the Cold War sort of dialectic in the late 80s, early 90s, like, once that was accomplished basically like the people that were running, you know, uh, the American economy, like the ruling elites and the technocrats and everybody were like, okay, yeah, now let's like get rid of this stupid shit. Like we, we sort of needed to keep that in place during the cold war because it, it, it would look bad and, you know, potentially, uh, and maybe they needed some kind of like financial kind of regulation, centralization to, to really build up the productive forces of our empire and blah, blah, blah. But then, you start to get this like Wild West vibe come back with a vengeance in the 1990s and like a lot of it is piggybacking also off of, tech, off of technology in Silicon Valley. And then you also see like the magical thinking come back in which, uh, you know, was very popular during the Gilded Age. Especially with like the ruling elites, they were all obsessed with seances and theosophy and all kinds of wacky shit. You know, inventing cornflakes so we wouldn't jack off. Like they're <laughs> they're all up in our business, basically. Um, and and that I mean. They were extremely all up in our business, and they were like they were restrained just a little bit for like seventy five years. I mean, it almost and makes you
3: pine for the cornflake days, honestly. <laughs> like you know, but uh, well, now yeah. they have much
2: stronger tools at their disposal, um, and they want you to just jack of off all
3: everything. the time. I mean, Twitter like now looks like that's a porn site. Too. Like when I go to it, like, um, that's
2: true. Actually, that's maybe one thing they've uh, they've abandoned is their their opposition to onanism. Um, I don't know if well, Olivier like this or sorry what were you gonna say no you go you go okay i i just wanted to throw in because i feel like this does tie into it i don't know if you're aware of uh mark anderson um going on joe rogan about a week ago when we're recording this and um i think that even touches with like what you were saying earlier about like rfk and shit coding everything and like maybe this weird silicon valley like cowboy pivot towards like schizo culture but you know, Anderson started talking, going off for like twenty minutes about like Dave McGowan and weird scenes inside the canyon oh, in this like very God. conspicuous way, and I'm like, what? But he also throughout was saying like, yeah, but that's why the music was so good. I mean, do you want the good uh, music from like the Laurel Canyon <laughs> psyop, like poo poo pee pee prog bands, or not? Like, right. and and so he was <laughs> saying that no, I think cults. Are, he literally was like, cults are good. No, yeah, and there's cults all around Silicon Valley, and you know a lot of them turn into like sex cults after a while. You know, people living together, having sex with each other, and you know sometimes it just sort of organically kind of develops into a cult. And I know he's one of these. I think he's a uh, an effective accelerationist now. I guess effective Is altruism wasn't from effective hardcore altru- enough. Oh, okay, yeah. I guess right. it's some new hyper version of it. And he's got his fingers in all kinds of pies around Silicon Valley, and uh, and I don't know. It's but it's it's weird how. Like, they they are embracing, like, magical thinking. And then, of course, the other big overlap is psychedelics, which these people are also super into, which I think raises suggestibility, particularly in certain curated group settings of, like, kind of powerful influential people together and the push to sort of, I think I said it in our sus psychedelic series multiple times. Like this shit reminds me of crypto. This shit reminds me of the crypto industry. Like it's just these like sus grifters offering these like utopian narratives about how this new X technology, funny, X technology is going to uh, save the world and resolve all the contradictions of capitalism and provide abundance for literally everybody. You just have to uncritically embrace it. And, and so I'm not surprised to see that, for example, uh, Mr. Brock Pierce was at uh, the Microdose Psychedelics Conference in Miami uh, last year, um, the same one where like, Hamilton Morris tried to like roast all of his uh, haters and told a bunch of lies. And wouldn't you know it that actually... Brock Pierce, uh, according to his business bio these days, uh, has been a longtime supporter of MAPS and was also a pre-IPO investor in a Thai life sciences out of Germany, which of course is one of those uh, psychedelic startups that is uh, also backed by Peter Thiel. So, you know, he's, uh, and he's also, oh, that's right. At Wonderland 2022, he announced his new psychedelic startup, Mystic Ventures which kind of just sums it up right there right like we're getting into some mystic venture capitalist territory here i think now and um and crypto is a place where you can kind of you know strike asymmetrically at the pillars of like new deal regulation that are still there because oh it's just so important that we unleash this amazing technology to everybody right now so that blah 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 and like the gains from it never just like the it's funny they invoke the gold rush but you know anybody that's read gustavus Myers or listened to our episodes about him knows that it wasn't your average coal you know it wasn't your average gold miner your average 49er that like made all the money from the gold rush it was like the fucking vulture silk toppers that came in and like bought up all the land and like monopolized everything and like used fraud and like bribery and all these other things and like before you know it oh look like four railroad guys own california you know like Man. uh and like tucker carlson's great-great-grandfather who was a rancher you know probably owned like one-fifth of fucking farmland in the state and it's like that's how these things tend to go and like actually invoking that Jeffersonian shit is like, it should be more of a tell to people that that is how it's going to go. Is that, you know, you're going to get some settlers come in, but like the wealthiest settlers are probably going to monopolize everything and use it for their own ends. And then they'll probably set up institutions that's always like when the libertarians betray you is like as soon as they have all the power, all they do is whine about like being left alone to do business. But like as soon as they have like the political juice to make laws to protect themselves and their power, like they fucking do it because they're like liberals at the end of the day. (laughs) You know what I mean? Liberals, if anything, are a little more honest about it.
4: It makes me think of Prospera, which is um, in Honduras, which is an island, which is uh, designated as a special economic zone, uh, or one you might call them an autonomous zone, a Mm Hakim based style autonomous zone. But one of the things that they're uh, really into is like all the sort of life extension research and nonsense. And but I think to 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 bring it to the sort of like New Deal. Uh, financial mechanisms, what crypto does for and why venture capitalists are so into it. And again, thinking of a context in which our like tech capitalist economy is completely determined by the insane musings of, yeah, your Mark Andreessen Horowitz's and Sequoia Capital and all these Stanford, Palo Alto uh, venture types. What what it does is, you know, you can raise these massive pools of capital, like through coin offerings that are completely, you know, devoid or obviously beyond the sort of normal financial reporting mechanisms, but then allow you to think about, oh, this is like, you know, there's the there's the extracting money here for God knows, but then it's sort of like free money to then do the we're going to build an ideal society we're going to live forever we're going to whatever apply the shamanistic uh medicines of psychedelics in whatever way possible so there is i think it's this kind of fetishistic this this ability to conjure money in this magical way has all these other attendant sort of culty magical zones with which to sort of like yeah that's where i would put my money you know if 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 uh, sorry, if you're Brock Pierce or a true believer, let's give some of these sickos that I, the notion uh, that they really a, do. A, believe a
2: practicer, like. Or like a worshiper, that fucking sus, like pentagram thing. It's like, oh, yeah. and like Lucifer. <laughs> like but, that but he has on his fucking Facebook.
4: And that's where it is this sort of all world building notion of, and, and so they're like, they can disavow that, oh, right, this is just this um, completely dodgy security masquerading as currency masquerading as commodity masquerading as new community right they can just sort of they can believe all that about it and again it's it's really interesting to see tether's strategy in particular um is to sort of like invest and throw money into all these different little startups and you know this is not a as i remember uh there was an incredible documentary that got taken offline this was a um this was the Porto Topia little ten minute piece that uh, was uh, hosted by the Guardian, but got taken offline, and you can still find it on the filmmaker's Vimeo, and it's got like three hundred views. But it's like somehow that got deleted off the Guardian website, but. You know, Brock is like, look, you know, crypto. Everyone says crypto, crypto. It's just, just such a small part of what I do, you know? So, like, <laughs> you you can pretend that you're part of, as he, as he says, this is an everything movement, you know? Like, it's mm-hmm. uh, all these things are interlinked because the money allows you to create an edifice that is, you know, whatever, that's bringing this new world into being. And I And I do, like, the Burning Man stuff, obviously, this is not just, like, you know they're in the same unicorn tribe, or or having sharing ideas out at BlackRock. Um, it is a huge part of a kind of sustained campaign of of marketing these solutions and ideas. And um, I uh, really quickly. There is a um, – to bring it back to this, yeah, the Edmund Hillary Foundation here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We have these two goofies from California, the Monaghan brothers, that um, struck it big in their mid to late 20s and decided at a time when New Zealand was seen as like one of the great sort of like bunker escape sort of destinations – Sorry, footnote. I have a friend that did a street art mural for the Palantir Corporation in <laughs> Wellington and it's Lord of the Rings themed. He will not no, let great. you Shut the
2: fuck up. No. Yeah, it,
4: he will not let yeah. me see the photos. I'm like begging him, "Bro, bro, you have to" cause He didn't know what Palantir was at the time and he sort of like sheepishly confessed to me. Anyway, but this is this time when New Zealand is like Middle Earth and the sort of great haven. Right. Yeah, I didn't escaped. even
3: consider that. You a good point. And so they these love guys, it. Come they to- love it. Yeah.
4: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They came here and they started um, the Edmund Hillary Foundation, which is like, it's like TED Talk stuff. And it's got fellowships. And it is, it brings in all these different uh, sort of thought leaders and Silicon Valley types and investors. They brought in Sam Altman back in 2015. And there's this great photo of him wearing an All Blacks jersey. Um, mm-hmm. they're, uh, they've, they've also, uh, created, uh, the Namaste Foundation here and they host oh, okay. a, a, a rave Burning Man style thing called New Frontiers and there's geodesic really? domes and all this kind of stuff. And the, the founders, uh, they love to subject their cult members or, you know, uh, fellow travelers to their like Kendall Roy ass rap lyrics, which are just some of the... <laughs>
3: Okay. I'll show
4: you the video. It's some of the oh most the deb- shit ever.
1: Yo yo, I hope y'all ready to go, cause I'm ready to flow and blow like a volcano. Y'all ain't even ready to know. Got so much excitement and so many good feelings as we're here today to celebrate the Creative HQ of New Zealand. When you come from overseas, the first thing you see is just trees and honeybees. Clean mountain springs and endless fields of green. From the jungle valley to the mountain peaks, we listen to Mother Nature and hear loudly she speaks. Got world champion rugby and Lord of the Rings, awesome Manuka honey, and Earth's happiest sheep. (laughs) It's literally in tomorrow. 21 hours ahead means three hours behind. Southern hemisphere different stars, a whole different sense of time. But then you look closer, and more is perceived. Because like a tree, New Zealand's roots run strong and deep. With a culture not based on commerce, but on kindness, one that values the importance of wisdom, balance, and silence, Kiwis value fairness, compassion, and honesty, witty and reflective with self-effacing modesty. Balancing individual responsibility with deep civic connections. Leaders elected fairly in honest open elections.
4: Anyway, okay, sounds like they're just hippies with money doing their thing. Well, they're doing some other important things. They have, uh, they created an investor visa in New Zealand. So if you're from the Valley, if you're in tech, you could like come here and uh, get a, a visa, sort of a streamlined process. But they're also um their co-founder Yusef e. Ali, is a member of this uh, Frisco think tank called uh the Institute, which has among oh, yeah, yeah, its yeah. advisory board uh Marion Goodall, who is the original, it's, I don't chief exec of Burning Man going back to like '95. And this guy, Yusuf Ayali. E. The other interesting aspect of, of this, so this is all burning man centric it's all very like we're just finding our way through this sort of mystic journey etc cetera, etc cetera. but they also have included um in this uh think tank this sort of very tech optimism solution driven think tank the big hitters from the human rights foundation like yemeni park and thor halverson oh, yonmi park yon is if i pronounce uh, i'm sorry i pronounced it
2: yonmi yep yeah. I think it's uh, Me yeah. Park. There we go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We've talked about her before. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, so, it's oh, a really. Oh no, actually, yeah. The Human Rights Foundation. That's what you're referring to, right? Yeah, yeah. Human, yeah, Rights, Human Foundation. Rights Foundation.
4: I'll, I'll put a little pin in them because they've got. But, okay. uh, but this guy Yusuf a. Ali, he's then also uh, his latest project is to take Vitalik Buterin, the founder of Ethereum around and and do a series of sort of like Web3 conferences and meetups. And they were there for the Afropolitan Web3 conference. And Afropolitan is a project that um, is essentially an outgrowth of Balaji Srinivasan's incredibly crank manifesto, The Network Nation, which is just like, what if crypto was a country? <laughs> um and it's, it's it's this incredible concept of like and we it's it's maybe more realistic than um acon's wakanda but it's it's uh-huh. it's a kind of web 3 version of akon's wakanda and it it's it has it in its manifesto that like you know the nation state is a violent colonial experimentation for uh, people of color and we will create our own nation in web 3 and we will have we'll be at the cusp of this trillion dollar thing so Okay, this Hmm. is a long roundabout way of saying laundering through Burning Man is is whatever. It's all our favorite friends in venture capital. It's Balaji. It's these weirdos from the Human Rights Foundation backed by the scathe Mellon Fortune and Peter Thiel. It's all of the sort of worst aspects of sort of like American libertarian culture. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah, No, exactly. (laughs) Like. Uh, yeah. Pervert cowboys out in the desert, uh, tripping on 2CB with Alexander Shulgin and like an army colonel or something. Like I think we we've postulated we still have to do like a dedicated kind of like dive into Burning Man, kind of definitively. But I've been. Sussed out by the vibes that. of it for years. I mean, living in Los Angeles and like also growing up in the Bay Area, like I've worked with people who were like burners. You know, I've just like encountered tons of people who are burners and stuff. And like you you definitely start to like notice like the culture after a while. But like the Silicon Valley people are really the most kind of hardcore about it and You know, you really do have these CEOs going up there and stuff. And I think there's also like a a social experimental aspect of it, similar to the acid tests in Stanford in the 60s, except this happens every year out in like a Nevada like test range site or something, you know. And so it's not just a place to like test out, I don't know, technologies or drugs or things like that, but also ideas and like social groupings and philosophies and things like that. Cause the burners always bring back wisdom from the playa, man, right? Mm-hmm. And they want to like incorporate it back into their like their C Corp or whatever the fuck.
0: I just want to comment on that that idea of our potential as we think about our collective future. You all have the potential to be superheroes. Find that that inner strength, that inner power because the world needs you now. And so I wanna have a conversation about our future as we imagine the future in which we all wish to live. A future that works for everyone. The two areas Where my time is spent is in the area of innovation, in the area of technology, tools that can facilitate positive transformation in the world and that of governance, the systems by which we govern ourselves. And so as we think about the future, as we architect a future together, we need to look to the past. We have to understand where we've come from, be aware of where we are, and chart a course into the future, and there's all of these things, and so let's take a step back in time. This is a a piece of art of a sovereign or a king known as the Leviathan, and the idea was that the king was the, the sovereign of the representative of the people. And this style of governance was our primary form of government for a very long time. And it worked well in many instances, but not all. One example of this system failing was King John in the year 1215. King John was being a tyrant, and 25 of his barons wouldn't have it. And they got together and drafted up a document known as the Magna Carta. To limit the sovereign's power that said the king is not above his own laws, and also to give the people rights things like due process. This document has given us and is a foundational document a lot of the freedoms that we have here with us today. And we can fast forward to the United States of America and the American Revolutionary War where again the settlers here here specifically said we don't want to be serving England. We want to be our own sovereign nation. We don't want to be ruled by those across the pond. And they were willing to bleed and die for that. And they did. And upon winning that Revolutionary War, they had to ask themselves, what kind of future do we wish to architect? What kind of world do, in which do we wish to live? And they created foundational documents and ideas. And so they did that. And we have these ideas, these, uh, these principles, these values like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If the founding fathers knew what we know now, If they had the tools that we have now, what might they have done differently? Because we are in a similar place in time as they were. We're in the middle of this fourth industrial revolution and we have new tools at our disposal that allow us to do things. We are living in a period of time where change isn't just an option. It's necessary for our survival. And so what kind of changes are we going to make? What kind of future are we going to co-create? And so I took a look at our system of governance or our government, that thing that governs over us, and said, well, I wanna do something about this because I'm deeply concerned. I'm worried about our collective future. So I did what most any of us might do. I I went and ran for president of the United States. And as someone that has lived on the forefront of change from a a technology perspective, I'm looking at those tools as well. So technology is is a tool. It's amoral. How we use it determines the impact it has. Now the atomic bomb obviously being an example of how technology could be used to create great harm, but that same technology can be used to facilitate the creation of energy, for example. And so our intentions determine the impact that that technology has. I wanna talk about the web, and sort of web two, and this concept of web three. Web two is the the internet we have today. And web three is a, a concept that you've heard about, you may be familiar with. And this idea of decentralization that's often often mentioned in that context and yes it is about decentralization and the distributed distributing of authority but a better way to understand what's happening and what this means is is this idea of demonopolization that is what we're doing with web 3s we're taking the web as we know it where you have large central players that have aggravate a- aggregated large user bases that they monetize and we are taking those Web2 businesses and demonopolizing them by turning them into public utilities. And by doing that, we're taking that data and putting it into a public ledger. So we're demonopolizing these businesses by turning them into public utilities with all of that database existing in a public ledger where anyone can start to create an interface to that database, where there's no switching cost anymore, where we own our data and we can easily migrate from one place to another if we wish. And so we go from users in the Web 2 to community in Web 3. Web 2 being where people are owned by the network and Web 3 being where we own the network and its, uh, and its community. And so this is really a story of back to the future. When the web was first being architected we also were there were people sitting around thinking about how these tools might be used to create a better future, architecting the future in which we are right now. And Web 3 is that moment where we're taking a look back on the web and everything we've created. Now knowing everything we know and having new tools, we're essentially reimagining the web, having learned from everything, to create a web that ultimately works better for all of us. And so in that same idea, I want us to think about government. Gov1, which is where we began in this country. To what we have now is Gov. 2 And Gov3 being where we're going in this same context where our government is already a public institution so we're not talking about taking large private institutions and demonopolizing them. But how do we utilize these new tools to create a future that can work for everyone? You know, let's think about what world might look like, what this country might look like, what our government might look like at the end of this century. I think there's a reasonably good chance that our governments are going to become software platforms. If you're familiar with DAOs or decentralized autonomous organizations, we're seeing the beginning of these experiments where we're programming governance where we're beginning to, to codify and encode the rules. And we're going to have to ask ourselves again, what are those values? What are those uh, principles that we wish to encode into these systems? And so, unlike our founding fathers, where you needed to be a man and, smart and part of a small group to be a participant in the creation of the foundation of our nation, I invite you to participate because we now live in an open world with open source systems where anyone can be a participant in this change. You're all invited as we think through the foundation of this institution in which we live and how it's programmed in the world in which we wish to live. You know, as we start writing these documents, I mean, the Federalist Papers of our time are going to be written now and in the near future we'll be drafting documents like the Declaration of Interdependence as we think about our our identity and the foundation of our sovereignty as we claim our names as we take ownership of ourselves as we begin to own our data and to be the beneficiaries of it and the monetization that comes with it And so I invite you to be a part of that conversation because the future is going to happen to us or it's going to happen with us. And it's important that we all participate in shaping that. And so who are you? And who are we? And where are we going? Thank you for having me.